All right. Good morning, guys. My name is Steve, and I am the lead pastor, and uh, thank you for braving the Arctic chill and treacherous roads to join us this morning. Uh, We're going to be continuing our sermon series, God With Us, as we prepare our hearts uh, for Christmas, which is next week. Uh, And so entering into the Advent season, just again, looking at the stories um, of the birth of Christ. So grab your Bibles. Let's go ahead and go over to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 855, Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 55. So I'm going to be reading 26 through 55 and then just referencing uh, different parts of this story as we move through this morning. All right, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give, him, will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered into the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exiled those and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The word of the Lord. All right, well, Merry Christmas, guys. Um, I want to remind you next week, next Sunday, in fact, is Christmas, and we will not be gathering on Christmas morning, not here. Uh, You will be gathering in your homes and in community, and uh, we encourage you to, to enjoy it and celebrate it. This is our gift to our our servant teams, our deacon teams, who work incredibly hard to enable us to gather throughout the year. Uh, we want them to have the ability to gather with their families and to celebrate and to worship uh, at home and uh, without having to um, work here all day. And so um, next Sunday, we will not be gathering, but we will be here on Christmas Eve, and I hope you'll join us on Christmas Eve. So next Saturday night at, uh, at 5 and at 6.30, we will have services um, that will be just full of song and worship and joy and, and uh, encourage you to come out. 
We do have childcare at the five o'clock service for infants through age three, and so uh, you'll want to keep that in mind. All right, I also want to give you um, an update. Last week we took a special offering, and uh, many of you uh, participated, and I wanted to let you know um, at this point, and there's, there's actually a number of people that are still um, have expressed interest and haven't been involved, but at this point we've raised over $31,000. Uh, in that offering. So that's incredible. That's incredible. Um, with the money that we have already saved, we're well on our way to the halfway point of what we need. And uh, that's, that's pretty incredible. And so let's keep praying. And um, our goal, obviously, is to address the need of, of accessibility on our main floor for our family members and our guests who have difficulty with stairs as quickly as possible. And so we will continue to work toward that, but I wanted to just share that with you. I mean, that's a huge win, and, um, and I wanted to, to celebrate that with you. Uh, if you haven't been able to be involved, if this was something you wanted to be part of, there's still time. Uh, it is a year-end offering, and so we would encourage you to participate uh, anytime before the end of the year. You can give online, or you can write a check, or just let us know, and we will include that in the total. And um, it will go toward the same project. All right, you guys, this morning we're continuing to prepare our hearts for Christmas. Um, to, to kind of prepare my heart, a while back I read um, a new book by Tim Keller, uh, one of my favorite authors. He, uh, he wrote a book um, called Hidden Christmas, and um, I really enjoyed it. He has a fresh and unique way of approaching very familiar stories and uh, his book has kind of become one of my primary resources as I've prepared these, these sermons. Uh, last week when I talked about the mothers of Jesus, um, uh, he just had some insightful stuff. In fact, one of the chapters in that book is called The Mothers of Jesus. I stole that. And, um, and this week uh, I have borrowed heavily as far as just insight because when it comes to Mary, um, Mary is one of those figures that, that it kind of, I, I don't know, I, I find myself kind of getting into a rut thinking about. And so I found his approach very fresh, and it was helpful. Um, Mary's one of those figures who honestly, I think, most of the time just seems kind of inaccessible to us. You know, I mean, she just is one of these people that is just so stinking holy. You know what I'm saying? Like, like she just is not relatable, right? I mean, um, when you think of Mary, man, you often think of those images, right? The ones where where she is both serene and serious and bright and glowing, and, and this person who is just like eager, you know, because she's so holy. She's just eager to be uh, the handmaid of the Lord, to be the servant of the Lord. You know, God, do whatever you want with me because, because I'm just that holy. And, um, and as a result, you know, we kind of see her as one of these, these saint figures. And the challenge with saints is they just seem beyond human to us. Right? They, they seem unrelatable, right? It's, it's, she's great, but she sure isn't like me. But when you read the biblical texts, you get a very human picture, not just of all the, the saints, but, but this morning specifically of, of Mary. When you, when you read through the Gospels, you find that she was often confused. She, she struggled with God's plan for her life. She, at times, lost her temper. With her perfect son, um, she often misunderstood Jesus and at times even tried to oppose him. Um, she lost her husband before her old age. We don't know the details, but she had a lot of suffering in her life. She had other children, and with a family comes all the struggles of having a family with sibling sibling rivalry um, and the rest of it. I mean, I can't imagine when one of your your oldest child isn't just perceived as being perfect, but actually is, um, trying to parent your other children. So, so there, were, there were plenty of struggles for her. Now, here's the thing. Luke, the gospel, uh, when he wrote Luke, he includes a lot of detail about Mary, um, a lot more than the other, the other gospel writers. Um, and, and I believe it's because, again, he's, he's including information that is relevant to his audience. Luke was writing to a Greek audience to open up the story of Jesus to Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking people because Luke came from a Greek background. That means Greek, uh, Luke's audience would have been polytheistic. They, they believed in many gods. Um, they were relativistic. Um, there, was, there was a sense in which whatever kind of worked, worked, right? You can believe in this god or you can believe in this god. You can appeal to this one or you can appeal to that one. They were rational. 
Uh, they, they relied very heavily on the power of thinking and, and thought very highly of the human mind. And ironically, what that means is they were a lot like us today. <laughs> when you look at the characteristics of Greek society, what you find are actually the roots of our, our modern society. And so it's very relevant to us. So as we look at this text, what we see is that, is that God is breaking into Mary's life in ways that were unsettling and difficult. And Luke gives us a very human perspective on, on how she responded to that. And um, what we end up with is a very relatable account of, of what that means. Mary was given an unbelievable message, and she had to go through the process of coming to terms with it and, and growing in her faith. Because here's the thing, you guys. Faith isn't something you just, you just decide to have. You don't just decide to have faith in God. You don't just decide to have faith in Jesus. Um, you, can, you can say, well, I want to be part of that. I want to I be a Christian or I want to go to church. But you can't decide to have faith. It's not a decision you make. Faith isn't a decision. Faith is a response. And in that sense, um, faith is, is a progressive response to what we see as true. So we have to be confronted with, with what is perceived to be true or challenges what we think to be true. And, and as we come to grips with it and get our head around it and start to respond to it, faith is the growth uh, of our heart response to it. So what we're going to see is, is the way God worked with Mary is in very much how God works with us. God provokes her, confronts her with a truth. And he confronts us with truths that are difficult in order to provoke us to faith. And so it's helpful as we look to see how Mary responded because I believe it's insightful to how we respond as well. So here's the thing. Our story is very familiar to us. Even if you've never read the Bible, you're probably familiar with the broad brush strokes of this story, this idea of the angel appearing to Mary and, and being very complimentary and saying very wonderful things. You know, you're going to be blessed among women and, and uh, you're going to have this great kid and, and God is with you and all this good stuff. And in our mind's eye, we see Mary glowing in anticipation, eager to respond to this blessing, kind of this assumption, this humble assumption. Yes, I know I was marked for greatness, um, but that doesn't, that doesn't jive with the account, right? When we take a look at verses uh, 28 and 29, um, we see Mary's initial response in verse 28, and he, that is Gabriel, came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 29 tells us, but she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. <laughs> All right, if the angel Gabriel appears to you one day, I'm guessing that's an abnormal day. I am guessing that is not going to be normal, and I guess you're probably not going to respond normally. I think Mary's response is um, very understandable. It says that she was troubled. The, the word for troubled means confused or greatly perplexed or deeply shaken. There was a piece of her that was like, this is not normal. This isn't supposed to happen. There is something really weird going on here, right? Um, God was breaking into her life. And it was an unpleasant experience. God was breaking into her life, and, and, and he was coming in in a way that, that was disruptive and challenging and difficult, and she was troubled. Here's the, here's the thing, you guys. Every single one of us, we, we have our plan, don't we? Our plan for our life, our plan for the next six months, our plan for the next year, our plan for the next five years, and, and we like our plan. And if there's one thing we know instinctively, it's that when God breaks into our life, He's not automatically going to follow our plan. Because God tends to have His own plan. And that's why we call it breaking in, right? Because we've built this secure vision of who we are, who we want to be, and where we want to go. And when God breaks in, He reminds us that we are not God. And that our plan is not absolute. Mary had her plan, right? She had, 
She was a young woman. She was in the full flush of youth. She was eagerly awaiting her marriage to Joseph. She had her plan. And here God is breaking in, and when God breaks in, He takes over. And when God takes over, it disrupts our plan. Is there anybody in this room that wouldn't understand her being troubled, perplexed, having a deep anxiety that comes with with God threatening our sense of autonomy? But it did more than just threaten inconvenience. um, Part of it is that this is just not normal. This sort of stuff doesn't happen. So there's there's the struggle in her heart of, of, of God breaking in and threatening her plan, but there's also... I believe, a healthy questioning that goes with it. Like, is this even possible? In verse 29, she goes on, not only is she troubled, but it says she tried to discern what this was all about. That word for discern in the Greek is is, um, dialogizo, which comes from a root log, which um, that root means to to think, right? It's, it's It's a root that we get our English word logic from. Okay, so, so it means to think or to reason. The, the prefix dia means through, and so she's thinking it through. She's, she's logicking it through. She's analyzing it. She's not just like, like passively receiving, oh, huh, here's an angel. That happens every day. Guess we're cool. I think often when we look at biblical characters, we have a really modern arrogance about us. We think, oh, those people, they're ignorant. You know, when, when, when these things happen to them, they don't ask deep logical questions. They don't have rational struggles with supernatural things because they were so, so ir, uh, irresponsibly or, 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 or uh, illogically um, non-scientific. And yet what we find is that her first response is not only to be deeply troubled, but to have some serious questions. Like, what in the world is, is going on here, right? She is wrestling with it, thinking it through, carefully examining. She's making an audit, in a sense, of the information. You guys, this is far from an initial response of blind faith. This isn't somebody who, who just responds with absolute immediate trust. She became analytical, all right? When, when shiny beings appear, your first question generally should be, what the heck is going on? Did someone put something in my drink, right? This is, this is not normal. And she responds rationally. And she responds with a healthy skepticism. And I would say she responded with healthy doubt. When God first starts to break into our lives, it is seldom welcome, and it is often confusing. We don't like the idea that God may have new plans for our lives, that he might actually have a will that I have to submit to. I mean, that's a, that's a big deal, and we often have real questions. Not just about that, but how believable is it? So there's legitimate questions, but those legitimate questions are often undergirded by vested interest. We're very seldom able to become purely rational beings. Even our questions are influenced by our desires, because if it is true, it will be costly. And this is where doubt can either be our friend or our enemy. So to understand this, um, our view of doubt really needs to be nuanced. Um, Our culture actually loves doubt. It's part of our relativistic individualistic atmosphere of thought, right? We love doubt because here's the thing, we're we're able in a relativistic culture to accept everything and simultaneously doubt everything. That's where we like to be. We like to be those who are like, oh, well, your truth is your truth while at the same time skeptically holding all things as not being true. We we like to be open-minded and absolutely closed-minded simultaneously. That is our cultural current, And this can really be quite dishonest, and if we're honest, also quite convenient. Because if you doubt everything, you have a defense against anything that might intrude in your life. It allows you to accept what's convenient and reject what is challenging to your autonomy. And this kind of doubt is a defense, 
right? It's a defense against the possibility of answers because if there are answers, there's accountability. If there's accountability, it means I have to actually acknowledge that I might, in fact, be accountable. In reaction to this doubt, so our culture loves doubt, embraces doubt, and runs with it, I would say, in an unhealthy way because it it gets us off the hook for ever having to commit to anything. In response to that, often religious leaders go the opposite direction and deny doubt or make doubt an enemy. What they will often do is attack doubt as, as the opposite of faith, right? As soon as they see doubt, man, they just try to kill it. They try to stomp it out. Or, or if there is doubt, they try to minimize it or explain it away. They don't see faith as a gradual journey of growth. It's an all-in or nothing proposition. You guys, our understanding of doubt needs to be nuanced. Doubt is a normal reaction to what we don't understand. Mary had doubt and even fear of what this would mean if it were true. But it propelled her to ask real questions. Her doubt became motivation to discover more regardless of the cost. Instead of a defense and a convenient excuse and a a form of self-protection, she embraced it in a healthy way. When we use doubt to self-protect and self-justify, it can become a shield to protect us against the demands of faith and really just becomes a way for us to decide what we want to submit to, what we don't, what we want to embrace, what we want to reject. But when doubt is genuinely listened to, not run from, but genuinely listened to, Doubt can be a sign of growing faith because doubt causes us to ask questions. Questions cause us to dig in. Digging in causes us to be challenged, and being challenged causes us to grow. Faith isn't a decision. It is a response to the confrontation of truth. And we grow in our faith by allowing our doubt to challenge our faith to ask the questions that are hard to ask, to do the digging that's hard to do, to to open ourselves to answers that are inconvenient to what we want. But it is the path of growing faith. See, we see Mary listening and responding and gradually growing. Mary is knocked off balance when the angel first appears, when God breaks in, and she responds with rational and reasonable questions, right? In verse 34, after uh, the angel explains a little bit more of God's plan for her life, in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be? For I am a virgin. She begins with not just doubt, but then to the rational questions of possibility, right? What she's hearing sounded impossible. That a virgin would conceive a child, didn't make sense. You guys, the gospel is full of impossible things. I don't know if you've noticed this. The message that we are preaching every week is full of impossible things. The message that God became man. The message that not only did he die on the cross, but rose again from the dead. The message that the all-holy, sovereign God of the universe loves you in spite of you. But he absolutely loves you in all of your brokenness and your mess and and all the stuff you're trying to hide and deny even exists. He sees it and he loves you. Those are impossible things. When I see myself for who I truly am, I honestly can't even love myself. How can the all-holy, perfect God of the universe look at me and love me enough to send his Son to die and rise again for me. If you've never looked at the gospel and thought, man, this stuff's crazy. If you have never looked at the gospel and thought, man, this stuff is kind of impossible. If you've never been challenged by it, I don't know that you understand it. Because the message of the gospel is full of impossible things. Mary received impossible news and said, this seems crazy. But just because it was crazy doesn't mean she closed her heart to it. 
what we find is that she moves from doubt to presence and engagement. In verse 34, she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And then down in verse 38, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. We see here a progression. She's like, all right, I don't get it. I don't see how it's going to work. I've never seen anything like this happen before, but here I am. She remained present in the tension. And if we're honest, most of us hate tension. We like problems to be solved, not tensions that have to be managed. And and in this tension, she has to choose to remain present. There are things she doesn't understand. There are things that are difficult for her to get her head around. There are things that are difficult for her to believe, but, but she remains present. Here I am. Because there was a part of her that was saying, I don't want to be in control as much as I want to be in line with truth. So here I am. There's an openness and and a deliberate commitment to remain engaged. Often the biggest barrier at this stage isn't the intellectual questions about the gospel. It's the claims of the gospel. Because if this is true, I have to surrender my plans about me. I have to yield my autonomy to God. Because there's a being who made me. And who has a plan for me. And his plan for me is not going to be my plan for me. So Mary moves from doubt to committing to being present and engaged. And then in the process, she moves toward those who can help her understand this new paradigm and grow in her faith. She actually moves toward Elizabeth. Here's the thing, you guys. Faith can never be separated. Growth in faith can never be separated from the community of faith. We are such a highly individualistic culture that we often think, if I need someone else to help me believe this, it must not be true. Because the only thing that can be true are the things that I decide on my own that are my convictions that grow in the privacy of my life because spiritual, spirituality is, at the end of the day, a private experience. You need to realize that we are one of the first cultures on the face of the earth to ever view spirituality in this way. This is not the normal human understanding of how culture works. Just because it is our cultural assumption doesn't make it true. See, Mary moves um, toward those who can help her process these new truth claims in her life. She moves from doubt toward people. She visits Elizabeth, not trying to be uh, uh, questioning, or, or she just goes and visits Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, in response, man, it's, it's beautiful. She's not trying to be an evangelist. She just responds naturally and honestly about, this is what's going on inside of me, And this is what I see happening. And and in that process, just sharing that experience with Mary deepens Mary's faith, strengthens her experience, because I'm not alone in this. I'm not the only one experiencing these challenging things. There are other people experiencing them with me. And in sharing those things, it deepened her experience and understanding of them. It authenticates Mary's experience. You guys, faith. Because faith isn't just a decision that you have. It's not just a a, a rational result of a thought process. Because you can't just decide to have faith. If you're genuinely going to wrestle with this, you've got to do it in community. You've got to do it around people who are able to struggle with the same questions and share with you their experiences. And in doing so, have your own experience deepened and broadened. It has to not only break into our minds rationally, it has to break into our lives and make sense. So it is rational. I'm not saying it's not. The gospel is a a rational message. It is rooted in history. 
It is not just an abstract set of, of thoughts that are, that are just, you either adopt them or you don't. Man, this, this is history. This stuff actually happened, and you have to actually wrestle with, with the proof and the existence and the weight of history. But it is more than just rational. Faith is also progressive and relational and experiential. It's not enough to simply adhere to it in your mind. You have to grow in it, in your experience. Now, for some people, that initial experience of coming to faith is sudden and dramatic. For some people, man, they hear this message and it, is, it just makes sense and, and there's something that clicks between their mind and their heart and there's an instantaneous response in which they are like, this is true, man. And there's a radical and revolutionary change that takes place in their life. I don't think that's the norm. I think for most people it takes time and it takes struggle. Sometimes you just come to a point where you realize you're just done running. For me, um, I don't know the moment I came to faith. Like I can look at a window of period in my time where I was wrestling, right, in, the, in, in, in you know, being raised in a, in a Jehovah's Witness home and then being disfellowshipped after my parents split and then having these Baptists, my mom going to a Baptist church and, and all these questions and me just like engaging and wrestling and being influenced by, by, by literature and, and um, man, all this stuff going on. All this stuff going on. And, and there came a point one night where I opened my Bible and I read through the book of Hebrews and I knew by the time I was reading Right, that book, I opened that book that night and I read through it. And by the time I was done, I knew I believed. I wasn't happy about it. I mean, I was really happy about the message, but I, I was really kind of like, like, I was running from this stuff. Right? Because I knew that there was a cost involved. I knew that there was, this wasn't just, I mean, when I got done, I'm like, man, I can't deny it anymore. And honestly, my thought was, I may hate the church, but I love its Christ because I'm sick of Christians. But I can't deny that Jesus is better. That's where I was at that point. And there was a piece of me that was like, all right, I get it. I'm done. <laughs> I got caught. I'm done running, right? But I don't know. Was that the moment I came to faith or the moment I realized it? Was that the moment that, 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 that was suddenly, in, or, or was it just at that moment I finally realized, man, this thing's been creeping up on me all along? And now I just have to finally admit this is where I am. This is what I believe. And now I've got to reshape my entire view of life around that. I think for most people it is gradual. It is progressive. Every decision is a million micro decisions. Every step of faith is a, a million influences that come in and help shape that step of faith. But there comes a point at which you know it's true. See, we see this evidence of growing faith in Mary, as we watch her progress from, from incredulity, from, from questioning and, and having healthy doubt, to, to resignation, where she's like, all right, I'm present. <laughs> I get it. I'm present. I'll be engaged. I don't fully understand. To the point where we, in her, in her song, we see her actually moving to not only a growing faith, but a joyful response. In verses 46 and 47, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She's not only come to believe, she has come to rejoice. There is um, a sense here. When you read this song, Mary's song of response, that she is overwhelmed with grace. That she has an increasing trust in God's plan. There is an increasing joy in submission to it. I believe this is the natural progression. And I think we undercut it often by how we view the gospel, how we view church, how we view spirituality. I'm just going to be blunt about this. You guys, Jesus cannot be approached as a value-adding proposition. That's how often we approach it. Like, like, I've got a good life, but I want it to be better. I'm a good guy, but I want to be a better guy. So I think I need a little religion. I'll add a little religion, like I'm adding a little seasoning to the salad, and it's going to make this salad, which is basically good, better. 
Right? I'm going to make my life a little better. I think I will add a little Jesus to my already good life. And as a result, what we end up doing when we do that is we're constantly weighing out the claims of Scripture, constantly weighing out the claims of God in our life, constantly weighing them out. Like, is this one good for me or is this one not good for me? Does this one add value to my life or subtract it? And we tend to do a very relativistic approach to God where we're basically saying, I'll embrace this part because I like the way it plays out in my story. I reject this part because I just don't like the way the implications it has for my life. Jesus is not a value-adding proposition. See, when we see Mary here, Mary's not, not weighing out the costs. Well, I like this part. I don't like this part. She is receiving a blessing. And in some cases, a very hard blessing, a very challenging blessing, a blessing that would upend her life and change her story, but she is, in response, yielding herself wholly to it. And that's because in verse 49, I think we see something kind of... Kind of um, Profound. He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. There comes a point in our faith journey where this stops being about ideas, where it stops being about big things and cosmic movements, and it becomes about me. God didn't just love the world. God loved me. God didn't just do this this great cosmic work to redeem and restore all creation. He did this great cosmic work for me. It is cosmic and it is intimate. It is universal in its scope and it is radically personal in its application. He did this for me. You guys, if you view Christianity as a list of rules or a value-adding proposition, if you, if you view Christianity as something you do for God or something that will just add to your life and make it better, you're not going to have any wonder at the message of the gospel. Your heart will not be undone by grace. You will have no gratitude. But if this is something that is done for you, something that is done to you, something that is done in you, something that you did not deserve but is radically and freely given by the grace of God, there will be wonder and there will be a response of gratitude. You will be continually undone by that kind of love. And in the undoing, God's breaking in feels less threatening and more inviting. God's breaking in feels less like you're giving up something and instead receiving everything. The end result with Mary is that she moves into a willful and joyful surrender. She releases her need for autonomy. Because if this is true, if God is real, if he is the creator of all life, (laughs) the only rational thing is to submit to him. What started in verse 38 as a commitment to being present and engaged has grown into a joyful conviction. This is no longer the voice of someone who is simply submitting because God is stronger. This is somebody who is joyfully submitting because God is better. This is somebody who is absolutely, uh, deeply convicted that the story God would tell for her life is, the, is, is a better story than the one she would tell for herself. That in yielding, she's not giving up, she's gaining. In submitting, she is not sacrificing, she's being blessed. And in the end, she sees God as God and herself as his servant. And that's a beautiful place to be. Keller, in his book, tells a story of hearing a woman at a conference give an illustration. She said this, if you were to measure the distance between earth and the sun, you're going to find that it is 93 million miles. Now, if you were to say that that distance, 93 million miles, was in fact no thicker than a sheet of paper, 
than the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. The diameter of the Milky Way would be a stack of papers 300 miles high. There are more galaxies in the universe than we can count. But we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus holds all these things together by the word of his power. Is this the kind of person you would ask to be your personal assistant? Is this the kind of person that you would see as adding to your autonomous life to make your good life a little bit better because he can just assist you to tell your story? Or is this the kind of person you lay it all down in front of? All your dreams, all your hopes, all your plans, all your desires. And say to him, you're God, I'm not. And I trust your power and your plan more than I trust my intuition and my desires. So a few thoughts for us as we close, as we consider Mary's example for us today. First of all, engage your doubts and learn to doubt your doubts. Doubt can be your friend. Doubt can also be your enemy. Learn to embrace your doubts and listen to their questions. This can be scary. Because sometimes your doubts make you to ask questions that make you uncomfortable. But here's the thing. Truth is never afraid of doubt. Dig in. There is great material. If you're like, man, I just, I'm having difficulty with the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. How in the world can I believe that a man rose from the dead? Dig in. There is persuasive and powerful evidence to meet you in your doubt. But if you don't ask the question, you won't look for the information. If you don't look for the information, you will not be rationally challenged. And being rationally challenged, you'll not be invited into a deeper experience of the resurrected Christ. Doubt can be your friend. If you're one of those people who never has a doubt, you're just wired that way, right? Doubting is something that that just doesn't come natural to you. The world is black and white of of assurances and unassurances, and and, and you don't understand these things. Then I'm going to encourage you, first of all, stop judging those who do doubt. Stop perceiving them as weak or lesser than. And in fact, embrace their doubts and learn to encourage their faith. Walk with them through your de- their doubts, and your faith will grow along with theirs. Because here's the thing, we all need to grow in faith. Now, the flip side is, some of you need to learn to doubt your doubts. You empower your doubts and give them the amount of, of energy and strength in your life as if they were genuine convictions. Because you doubt something is true, you just assume it's not true. And you give your doubt the the, the same power of fact. You need to learn to doubt your doubts. If you're using them for self-protection or to avoid the difficult and challenging claims of the gospel. You guys, here's the thing. There are no easy answers in life. There are no easy answers in life. If the gospel seems hard to believe, I get it. I'm with you. If you think an alternative view of life is easy to believe, I'm not with you. There are no easy answers in life. And if you think, well, I'm not going to believe the gospel, that's too hard to believe, it's just easier to believe this, you're not looking at what you believe very carefully. Because there are faith assumptions related with any view of the world. And if you dig in deep enough, you're going to find that there are challenging assumptions that need to be questioned and examined. I'm just saying, listen to your doubts. Stop listening, empowering them with the power of fact. So, engage your doubts, doubt your doubts. Secondly, recognize that we're to walk by faith, growing in faith. We are to be moving from faith to faith. That phrase is used a lot in Scripture. Because here's the thing, when you become a follower of Christ, it's not just a one-time interaction where you're like, okay, I put my faith in Christ, it's all good. That's not the way faith works. 
It's not like this transaction you make with God and then you're all good and done. Faith is a journey. Faith is something that grows. Faith is something that has continuing and ongoing claims to your thinking, to your life, to your will, to your decisions. And every time those challenges come in, we need to learn to grow through them. Faith is not a static condition. Once you believe the gospel, you need to keep believing the gospel. Because God's going to continue breaking into your life in uncomfortable and surprising ways. He doesn't just do it once. He keeps on doing it. Because we're more committed to our autonomy than we know. And he's more committed to his sovereignty than we like. He is going to keep breaking into our lives, keep inviting us into submission, keep inviting us into a renewed walk of joyful submission. Because you're either going to be walking forward in your faith, in your relationship with God, or your faith is dying. There is no static faith. Faith isn't a one-time transaction with God. It moves from faith to faith. Thirdly, question your need for autonomy. In our culture, we don't question this because it's just an, an assumed norm. We love our autonomy. We love our individualism. We love our freedom. And we assume everybody wants to be free. Right? When we learn that there are societies out there that actually don't live for the autonomy self, autonomous self-good, we're like confused. Like, you mean there are people out there that aren't like us? Yes, there are a lot of them. In fact, we're the weird ones in world history and over the course of the globe. Question your need for autonomy. Here's the thing. We all want to be our own bosses. We all want to be our own bosses. We all want to be the center of our own worlds, being able to speak things into existence. We want the world to respond to our command and give us our every desire. We want autonomy. We want worlds that, that basically treat us like we're God without, of course, the responsibility of being God. You guys, Mary's faith was costly. It cost her her plan for her life. It wounded her deeply. There were pains that came with God's plan for her life that were profound and deep and real. It cost her her comfort, her reputation, her plan. But in the death of her own plan, she found radical joy, incredible freedom, She found levels of blessing and love in a relationship with God that she never would have experienced had she not submitted. You guys, often our growth in faith isn't blocked by intellectual arguments. It's blocked by our stubborn refusal to allow God to be God. If the Christmas story tells us anything, is that God will not cease being God. And in learning to yield and submit to that, we enter into the blessings of the overflow of his grace. And that leads us to our final, which is respond to love and grow in trust. For your faith to grow, you're going to have to come to a place like Mary where you can say to God, I am your servant. Not I am my master, I am your servant. I know my place. And I embrace my limits. You are God. And here I am. You guys, that is going to be one of the most difficult places to come to in your life. And it will only happen if you see God's authority as an expression of love. Mary had to come to a place where she saw God reaching in and disrupting her life as an expression of love, not just to, her, to the entire world. Hey, I'm going I'm to bless the world through you, but to her, for me. She had to see that that God's disruption was in fact an expression of love. And here's the thing, man, when when our hearts are are encounter love, we, we have no choice. We respond to love. Love changes us in ways that rules never could. Love changes us in ways that guilt and shame never can. Love actually reaches in and changes us, not simply conforms our our will, but, but changes our will. If you want to get here, you're going to have to allow your heart to be provoked with love. And it's only in being loved that you're going to learn to trust. There's a lot of times I look at God and I'm like, I'm a little afraid of what you're going to be doing here. I'm a little nervous about your plan for my life. 
but you have to grow in the trust that allows your heart to genuinely say, even though I don't understand it, even though I'm afraid of it, I trust you. And because I trust you, I will submit. The story you will tell for my life is better than the story I would tell for my own, so here I am, a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to whatever your word says. And here's the secret, you guys. The death of autonomy feels like death because culturally we so love it. But here's the thing, you guys. This leads to songs of joy. This leads to radical and powerful experiences of freedom. Mary's song, when you look at that, that is the expression of a soul embraced by the love of God who has, has willfully and joyfully embraced God's plan for her life and in doing so is experiencing a joy and a freedom and a love and a trust that she never could have by protecting her own autonomy. So I invite you this morning to imitate and grow in the faith of Mary. Whatever stage of faith you're at, whatever, because we go through this, it's cyclical, guys. This isn't one time only. We go through this process over and over and over again as God takes us deeper and deeper into an experience of faith and trust and renewal. So as we enter into the Christmas season, let's once again open our hearts to the love of God and embrace the growth of our faith. Let me pray for us. We're going to go into time of response. We're going to share communion in just a moment. Father, I thank you that you are a patient God, that you invite us, continually invite us, back into a renewed experience of your love. Even as you are king, even as you are sovereign, even as you are God, You work out your authority through the expression of love that you might not simply command our wills but win our hearts. I pray, Lord, this morning our hearts would be made a little softer, our wills a little bit more moldable, our desires a little bit more in line with the reality of who you are and who you've created us to be. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We're going to share communion in just a moment.